On October 12, 1813, retired U.S. President Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to another retired U.S. President, John Adams, describing a project he had been working on. The Founding Father was in the midst of creating a version of the New Testament which he felt would better represent the teachings of Jesus than what was currently available. He would end up calling this work The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He assembled it by literally cutting and pasting sections of his own Bible into a, a shorter document, stripping the Gospels of any references to the supernatural, including Jesus' resurrection. In his letter to Adams, he explained his reasoning. In extracting the pure principles which he, that is Jesus, taught, we should have to strip off the artificial vestments in which they have been muffled by priests who have travestied them into various forms, as instrument of riches and power to themselves. We must dismiss the Platonists and the Plotonists, the Staggerites and the Gamaliels, the Eclectics, the Gnostics and Scholastics, their essences and emanations, their logos and demiurges, eons and demons, male and female, with a long train of, or shall I say it once, of nonsense. We must reduce our volume to the simple evangelists, Select even from them the very words only of Jesus, paring off the amphibolism into which they have been led by forgetting often or not understanding what had fallen from him by giving their own misconceptions of his dicta and expressing unintelligibly for others what they had not understood themselves. There will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use, by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines. Okay, so I know that was a terrible version of T Thomas Jefferson's voice, and I know I'm pretty sure, actually, that I mispronounced the word amphibologisms, but back to Thomas Jefferson, the real Thomas Jefferson. I mean, wow, not condescending at all. Everybody else got Jesus wrong, including his near contemporaries and earliest followers, but Jefferson totally had him figured out. What Jefferson was doing wasn't a particularly new idea, but it was an idea that was just gaining popularity searching for the historical Jesus. The search for the historical Jesus was always meant to be a scholarly quest to separate the Jesus of history, whom almost all historians acknowledge as being an actual historical figure, from the Jesus of faith who performed miracles and cast out demons and was even resurrected, things that are hard to validate using normal historical methods. Starting with a few isolated German scholars in the mid-1700s, the movement has bloomed at the beginning of the 21st century. There's just one problem. Even among scholars with no religious convictions, there is no consensus on who the historical Jesus was or what the historical Jesus said. A good example of this can be found with an organization called the Jesus Seminar, which began in the 1980s and peaked out in the early 2000s. 
The seminar, a group of scholars who did not necessarily represent mainstream academia in the area of theological education, used a system of colored beads to vote on the statements of Jesus to determine how likely they were to have been from Jesus himself. They shockingly determined that only 18.7% of Jesus' words in the Gospels were probably his. But although this assessment of the Gospels got headlines, there was a lot of dissent in the group, and more mainstream scholars, both secular and people of faith, lambasted the group for its methodology, which they considered highly flawed. I'm not poking fun at the Jesus Seminar. They had an incredibly hard task, especially considering the constraints they placed on themselves by not leaving any room for a supernatural Jesus. So I have a conundrum. I will confess that the reason for the delay in releasing this episode has little to do with its production and everything to do with its writing. To this point, I have mainly used historical methodology to talk about the world Jesus entered. Almost everything I have stated on these episodes so far would be agreed upon as being factual by most historians, regardless of their religious affiliations or personal convictions. But for me, Jesus doesn't give us that option. My beliefs factor in, and like many, but by no means all scholars, I consider the writings of the New Testament to be good historical sources. And as a person of faith, I usually see the red letters of the Bible as being spoken by Jesus himself. That's not to dismiss the search for the historical Jesus altogether, even if you're a person of faith. I strongly agree with New Testament scholar N.T. Wright who said this, the continuing historical quest for Jesus is a necessary part of ongoing Christian discipleship. We doubt very much if in the present age we shall ever get to the point where we know all there is to know and understand about Jesus who he was, what he said, and what he did, and what he meant by it all. But worshiping God, fidelity to scripture, pursuing the truth, and a commitment to the mission all drive us towards the historical study of Jesus precisely as something with which faithful Christians ought to engage. So either way, whether you're approaching this as a person of faith or you're not, we can't talk about the history of the church and how we got from Jesus to here, without talking about Jesus. So here we go. I'll try to present him in as non-biased a way as I possibly can, but I won't make you any guarantees that I do a better job of that than the Jesus Seminar or Thomas Jefferson or a person of faith. Welcome to Post Biblical. The podcast that asks the question, how did we get from Jesus to here? I'm your host, Jonathan Kleinsmith. This is the part where I declare my biases. I am a Christian and a pastor, and this Jesus stuff isn't just interesting to me, it's life-changing. But the purpose of this podcast isn't for me to proselytize or to make converts, it's to educate. And I'm no expert, more of an advanced layman at best. I'm hoping to learn a few things along the way. So whether you're Christian or atheist, Jew or Gentile, Lutheran, or just went to a church that, you know, one time your niece got baptized in, I hope you get something out of this podcast on church history. A reminder, the show will usually be split up into two main sections, an opening narrative describing some element of church history in a hopefully unbiased way, and the potluck where I will have conversations with expert guests and discuss the implications of what we just learned. During the potluck sections, my biases are more likely to shine through, 
So if you just want pure history, feel free to stop listening once the narrative portion is finished. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into some church history. Hey, we actually did it. We've made it all the way from 930 BCE to Jesus. We're actually about to get to the point of the podcast, which is discussing the evolution of Christianity and this organization we call the church. The prologue is basically finished. Now we can get to the first chapter. As I inferred in the opening segment, this episode has been an absolute beast to write. We have plenty of ancient sources that give us biographical data on Jesus of Nazareth. The problem is that the largest portion of that data comes from the New Testament, a document strongly associated with religious faith. And metaphysics makes historians uneasy. All that being said, most scholars believe that each of the Gospels was written before the end of the first century, with the possible exception of John. There's a strong argument to be made that Mark was even written as early as 50 CE, within about 20 years of Jesus' own lifetime and during a period when many of Jesus' original followers were still alive. So there's no reason to say that the information contained in the Gospels or much of the New Testament is inherently dubious. But that being said, this is a podcast about the history of the church, not an apologetics podcast about why you should believe what I believe, or a faith podcast focused on Christian discipleship. In the intro, I promised not to try to convert anybody, And even though it goes against my pastoral instincts, I will continue to try and maintain an unbiased stance, or at least point out my biases when they come up, and when I am aware of them. So, using historical critical methodology, what can we feel confident saying about the Jesus of history? There are actually a few things. Friend of the show, Jimmy Doyle, pointed me towards the work of Luke Timothy Johnson and E.P. Sanders, who independently of each other, tried to deal with the question of what we can reliably know about Jesus from a historical mindset. A compounded version of their findings would look something like this. Number one, Jesus was from Galilee. Number two, he was Jewish. Number three, he was associated with John the Baptist. Number four, he gathered a number of followers, likely with a core of twelve. Number five, he taught about the kingdom of God. Number six, his life was associated with miraculous healing. Number seven, he had a conflict with Jewish political and religious leaders, likely associated with his critique of the temple. Number eight, he was crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate near Passover. Number nine, his followers claimed that he was resurrected. So I think all of these are valid data points that we can build the episode on. So let's dive in. Jesus was probably born between 6 BCE and 4 BCE. There's no way of knowing his exact birth date, but using a couple of different approaches probably gets us close. The first date, 4 BCE, can be arrived at because that is the year Herod the Great dies. The Gospels claim that Herod is alive when Jesus is born, but dies soon thereafter. Non-biblical sources are very clear about the timing of Herod's death. The other date, 6 BCE, comes from subtracting two years from Herod's date of death, 
since the Gospels seem to indicate that Herod's goons go looking for a kid two years old or younger. They weren't necessarily solely looking for a sweet baby Jesus in swaddling clothes, but they were willing to kill toddler Jesus too. These were some nice guys. Another couple of data points can be used to approximate when Jesus' ministry began. Luke gives Jesus' approximate age as being about 30 years when he begins his ministry. A 4 BCE birthday means his ministry starts around 26 or 27 CE. Luke also puts his ministry's starting point during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, which would be either 27 or 29 CE, depending on whether you count Tiberius' reign as starting during his co-regency with Augustus or when he fully takes the reins after Augustus' death. To me, the year 27 seems like the most likely starting date of his ministry, but nobody knows for sure, and there are loads of other theories. It's easy math from there to get us to an approximate date of Jesus' crucifixion. Our estimate from the Gospels is that Jesus' ministry lasted between one and three years, so he would have been crucified somewhere between 28 and 32 CE, using available numbers. Again, there's no way to know for sure, and we could be off a couple years in either direction, but this gives us a good ballpark time frame. The Gospels are short on biographical details of Jesus's early childhood. There are, of course, the birth narratives, the story of his family's flight to Egypt to avoid Herod's violence, and the scene where a 12-year-old Jesus schools some rabbis outside of the temple. There are other early non-canonical sources that we have as well. Uh, but most of those are very difficult to use in any way when sketching a non-biased biography of Jesus. So what we do know, what seems very likely is that Jesus was from Galilee. He is called a Galilean. Much of the narrative of the Gospels takes place in Galilee, and many of his followers were also identified as Galilean. In fact, Peter's thick Galilean accent even gives him away in the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus is about to stand trial. So the Galilee connection is strong. Galilee in the time of Jesus was a complicated place. If you remember our first episode, you'll recall that Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim or Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom included the territory of Galilee, so we can assume that they were ethnically Israelites and followed the Israelite religion. But when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and deported most of the Sumerians to the far corners of their empire, we stopped hearing about Galilee for a while. There's a very good chance that the population of Galilee was also deported, and the area was sparsely resettled by deportees from other parts of the Assyrian empire that did not worship Yahweh. The area would remain in Gentile, that is, non-Jewish hands, until roughly the beginning of the first century BCE, when it was annexed by the resurgent Hasmonean Jewish kingdom. New Jewish communities seem to have sprouted up in this time period, and there seems to have been a population explosion. Whatever pre-existing population existed before this was largely forcibly converted to Judaism, although it is worth noting that Gentile inhabitants continue to flavor the culture, as the place was referred to in both the Old Testament and the New as Galilee of the Gentiles. The Galileans were considered a little crude by the standard of a lot of other Judeans. Although they were praised for their zealousness in worshiping Yahweh and their patriotism for the Jewish nation, 
Their lack of understanding and proper observation of the law was commented upon by the Pharisees. This zealousness was on display after the Roman conquest of Judah. There was much Galilean resistance, including a rebellion against the very census of Quirinius mentioned in relation to Jesus' birth. When Jesus was a preteen or teen, there was another rebellion that ended with several hundred Galileans being crucified along the side of the road. It was a hotbed of Jewish rebellion, with would-be messiahs other than Jesus also gathering support there. Much of the economy of Galilee was dependent on the Sea of Galilee, with fishing and trade centered on the body of water. We should also note that the term sea is a little misleading. It's actually a lake only 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. But in ancient times, this was large enough to service several small cities and towns along its coast, although none of them were of any major importance on the international stage. All of this is to say that Jesus comes from the back country then, not the important hub of Jerusalem where the Jewish aristocracy was cemented. His first and last miracles are both reported as taking place in Galilee. His core followers were from Galilee, and scripture always labels him as being from the region. Jesus was a Galilean. He was also quite clearly Jewish. It's hard to say if he belonged to any particular sect, although many have speculated over time. If you remember the last episode, we talked about Jesus running afoul of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so it seems unlikely that he would have belonged to either party. Although it is worth noting that his beliefs on the afterlife, his use of the title rabbi, and his teaching in synagogues would most closely associate with the activities of the Pharisees as opposed to other groups. Almost no scholars associate him with the Zealots or the Sicarii, mainly because he seemed to stress nonviolence and is even famously telling Peter that those who live by the sword die by the sword. The few that support a Zealot or Sicarii Jesus point to his being executed as an enemy of the state, but this is a flimsy argument. Rome didn't need much of an excuse to execute anybody. One intriguing possibility is that he may have belonged to the Essene community for a time. This theory has gained steam mainly because of Jesus' association with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a sort of mysterious figure. The gospel accounts say he lived in the wilderness, wore a coat made of hair, and ate locusts and wild honey. He is first mentioned in ancient sources outside the Bible by our old friend Josephus. He confirms a few facts about John that the Gospels also attest to, namely that John had a following, he was associated with the practice of baptism, and he was executed by Herod Antipas. John's close association with baptism and the probable location of his activity on the River Jordan near the Dead Sea are the main reasons he has been associated with the Essenes. They were also obsessed with ritual washing and were operating in the same general area but it's impossible to know for sure. Anyways, because Jesus came to John to be baptized and John may have been an Essene, the theory has been proposed that Jesus was also an Essene. It's a thin thread, one that I think has many holes, but I do feel it's my job to report it. Anyways, regardless of which brand he was, Jesus was definitely a Torah-observant Jew. That he was able to gather a number of followers seems obvious today. 
After all, there are something like 2 billion people in the world who would self-identify in some way as being Christian. It seems likely from the gospel readings, most of his first followers were also Jewish. In fact, the 12 disciples the gospels tell us about were all Jewish men. It seems likely that there was significance to the number 12, possibly representing the number of tribes of Israel. But the gospel readings also make it clear that there were a number of followers who were not men. Several female followers are mentioned by name, and it is a group of women that first discover the empty tomb. It also seems extremely likely that Jesus' followers, for the most part, weren't the elite, powerful, or the rich of Judean society. Now we're going to talk about Jesus' core teachings, and here I have to again give a disclaimer. As a Christian pastor, I believe that all of the teachings of Jesus as described in the New Testament are valid and true and even historical. But since we're trying to be unbiased, the core of the teaching that historical methods would show were definitely at the heart of what Jesus taught were his teachings on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, when we think of kingdom from a 21st century standpoint, we sort of have an otherworldly or ancient view of it. Most of us live in some form of a republic. Even modern countries with kings or queens are mostly ruled by parliaments or prime ministers. But when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God in the first century, he was talking to a culture that had kings and queens and even emperors. And most of the governing authorities for the Jewish people were corrupt. So when Jesus declares that God's kingdom is advancing, it's like saying a new government is coming, a new nation is coming that will be ruled by God and governed according to the ethos of God. It's a radical idea, and you can see why the Roman authorities might have had a problem with it, especially in a place as volatile as ancient Judea. It also seems likely that Jesus was associated with healing. I know, I know, the cynics who listen to this podcast must be saying, why isn't this in your, hey, I'm biased section? But a lot of non-Christians actually agree on this point. It seems reasonable to associate Jesus with healing because there were, indeed, a number of itinerant healers operating in the ancient world. We don't know all of the methods they used, but to common folk of the day, the healing they brought about may indeed have seemed magical or miraculous. Now, obviously, from a biased standpoint, I actually do think they were miraculous. But they don't have to have taken place in a miraculous way uh, to be reasonable from an historical viewpoint. It's interesting to note that up until as recently as the 18th century, it was common for Christian preachers to also practice medicine. Although if you're listening, please don't think that the silver drink that one Christian dude is selling will really cure coronavirus. And for God's sake, give your kids vaccines. God gave you brains for a reason. Okay, that was probably biased too, uh, but in a different direction. Apologies. Anyways, Jesus was probably associated with healing in some way. So what's the historical explanation of why Jesus had to die? Well, my pastor answer would probably have to do with atonement or forgiveness of sins. That'd be biased, though. And looking through a theological lens still wouldn't explain the motives behind those who carried out the deed. It seems extremely likely that Jesus was in conflict with the religious authorities over certain teachings, and the one that sticks out for historians was his critique of the temple. Remember, the temple is a source of pride for some Judeans, 
but it also represented Herod, oppressive government, and as the story of the whips in the temple indicates, injustice for the poor. In fact, Jesus's disruptive act at the temple seems to be the thing the author of John thought we would know him by, which seems to be the reason he mentions it near the beginning of the gospel instead of just placing it at the end. Basically, after some preamble, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. You know him from this. Regardless of why it happened, we know who had Jesus crucified, Pontius Pilate. And when they did it, near the Jewish holiday of Passover. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from roughly 26 CE to 37 CE. One of his powers as the Roman prefect was to appoint the Jewish high priest. It's worth noting that the high priest who served under Pilate, Caiaphas, who is also mentioned in the New Testament, served for Pilate's entire administration. So it's safe to say that Pilate viewed Caiaphas and the Sadducees as reliable political allies. And when they pressed for a political enemy to be put to death for inciting rebellion against Rome, he would have been hard-pressed to say no. It would have been especially hard for him to say no during the Passover, when tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would have been in town, and all of the tensions lying underneath the surface would have been more likely to boil over. The Passover meal was and is a meal where Jewish people celebrate the Exodus, God liberating them from an oppressive foreign power. Jesus' repurposing of the meal, if it happened as the Gospels presented, would have been powerfully symbolic. So if you want to take a dive into the Bible nerd deep end, we can even guess some exact dates of Jesus' crucifixion, since we know the rough years of Jesus' death and the date of the Passover on each of those years. So the most likely dates in chronological order are April 9th of 27 AD, March 29th of 28 AD, April 17th of 29 AD, April 6th of 30 AD, March 27th of 31 AD, April 14th of 32 AD, and April 3rd of 33 AD. Now, what happens after Jesus' crucifixion obviously is a matter of debate, and from a historical critical mindset, a matter of faith. But it seems that very early on, within three days if you believe the Gospels, or as early as one or two years if you don't, Jesus' followers began to say that Jesus wasn't in fact dead, that he had been resurrected. And either during his lifetime or shortly thereafter, his followers began saying that not only was Jesus divine, but he was also the Messiah. Remember, the holy king that was coming to end the oppression of God's people? Only, unlike all the other would-be messiahs of this period of Judean history, this messiah wasn't a military leader. In fact, the concept of messiah was completely reinterpreted. But whether you believe these claims or not, there is no disputing one fact. These claims that Jesus was the crucified Jewish Messiah who had come back to life would change the world. The impact would be so far-reaching that 2,000 years later, one of his most obscure and flawed followers from a completely different culture and living on a completely different continent would create the podcast that you are listening to today. Uh, I'm talking about me. I know, mind 
blown. Okay, we made it. That was by far the hardest narrative that I have yet attempted. Honestly, it's not even close. If I offended you because I didn't make bold enough theological claims, I'm sorry. Now, if you feel I was too biased and that I didn't live up to my goal of being as objective as possible, I'm also sorry. I can't pretend that Jesus hasn't shaped my whole life in many ways. I just have to own it and say that I'm doing my best. Anyways, now it's time for the potluck, where each episode I will invite an expert guest to discuss the topics brought into focus by the opening segment. FYI, if you're not a part of a Christian church and are wondering what a potluck is, I'll just say real quickly, it's a wonderful Christian tradition where everybody brings food and enjoys fellowship around a common table. For us, this will usually mean some pretty rad discussions from our guests while we eat fried chicken or something. Today, our guest is Dr. Erica Johnson Edwards. She is a history professor at Francis Marion University in South Carolina. She specializes in French revolutionary history and the French Atlantic world. She's the author of a monograph, Philanthropy and Race in the Haitian Revolution, part of the Cambridge Imperial and Postcolonial Study Series. She is also co-editor of a volume, The French Revolution and Religion in Global Perspective, Freedom and Faith. She has published articles in the Journal of Western Society for French History and the Journal of Transnational American Studies. Her research interests include religion and slave revolution in the greater French Caribbean, and some of the classes she has taught include courses on medieval European history. Needless to say, she knows her stuff. We're having her on today because one of the other classes she teaches is early European history. And I don't know if you know this, but the whole Christian movement thing, this whole Jesus explosion, yeah, it takes place in early Europe. So here we go. We are now officially recording, uh, but I will edit out the part where you asked for my Twitter handle okay, and stuff like that. And that'd be awkward. Yeah, yeah. We don't want that to be on the thing. Of course, if you've listened to any of my podcasts so far, you probably realize it's awkward anyways. But That's all right. I liked that you actually scripted in some of your jokes. <laughs> Just some of them. Uh, no, the worst part. So uh, did you read the script at all for this uh, episode? Yeah. Yeah. No, so I liked it. I uh, There's that whole section where I read, uh, I read Thomas Jefferson, like a huge quote from Thomas Jefferson. I recorded that and I did a voice and I didn't, I didn't really mean to, but I started reading it. And then I, next thing I know, I'm doing this like terrible version of Thomas Jefferson and I just kept it. So. Cause I don't think we know how he sounds. <laughs> we don't really know. I just go with what the guy from Hamilton sounded like. Right. Mm-hmm. I like that. He reduced the Bible to 46 pages. Yeah. It really m- makes it easier to read. I'll, the I'll get Cliff's notes. Because I'm going to be honest, more people would read it if it was that long. Yeah, they would. They would. Uh, there's, well, like, so this is my uh, Greek version of the Bible. And I just, it might not be the most accessible thing right. for most people. Yes. I get that. 
I totally understand where you're coming from. Yes. All right, so okay, we'll go. uh, gonna get make this official and get this mm-hmm. started. Okay. Uh, I'm welcoming now Dr. Erica Johnson Edwards from uh, uh, Francis Marion University in South Carolina, right? That, yes, yes. Is that where that is? That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, full disclosure, Erica and I know each other uh, from uh, living in the same county growing up, which that doesn't sound like that would make us know each other. But when you're from Oklahoma in rural Oklahoma, being from the same county is a big deal. Um, so uh, we, we, we do know each other, but I do not know how to address you. Uh, like, do you prefer Dr. Erica? Do you prefer Dr. Johnson Edwards? Do you prefer Dr. Edwards, Dr. Johnson? Do you prefer anything? I think for the purpose of this, um, and since we do know each other, just go with Erica. That's fine. I make my students in my classes refer to me as Dr. Edwards, but um, that's more for kind of reminding them we're not like friends <laughs> um, because it's really hurtful when they get grades from me if they thought we were friends. So. I know. Yeah. I get, I just speaking personally, uh, I, when my professors give me bad grades, it makes me feel bad about myself. Like they don't like me. Uh, yeah. So I don't want them to have it even higher where they thought we were like friends, right? Yeah. I mean, we were very, um, right. I, I'm, I'm nice to them and everything. I make a lot of jokes and stuff, but I just don't want them to all of a sudden get a grade back and forget that that was my, my role. Um, right. So I have them call me Dr. Edwards, but anybody else, I really don't care. That's, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little different for me as a pastor. Uh, cause, uh, I don't have to make those distinctions as much. And some people call me reverend and it makes me feel very, really weird. Uh, Do you think that's because of age? I think that, well, sure. uh, That's part of it. Uh, The average age of our congregation is 60 and a half years old. And so when you have somebody that's uh, older than your mom calling you reverend, Mm -hmm. it does feel weird. Um, Also probably part of that is uh, like the honorific is different, right? Like, so Yours is an, uh, a notable achievement that makes you an expert in your field. But in Christianity, at least the way I interpret it, like, you know, uh, we're all equals at the foot of the cross. And so for somebody to put me up higher really sets a false expectation I can't keep, right? Like, I, I guess, um, so our, our reverend is 40. Okay. Um, and he actually does have a doctorate in theology, but he doesn't go by doctor, right? Right. Um, he goes by reverend. But I, I like using his title because it makes me think of the fact that he is an expert in something I'm not, right? He knows sure. that book inside and out in a way I could never imagine. Right. Um, you know, he can take a verse and spend 30 minutes on it. And I right. can. <laughs> um, so I think the title is is merited. I think that it's been earned. You've got sure. some expertise. Um, yeah. Now, if you're thinking of it as a title of reverence, I can I can see where that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it, we have a you know our specific title, reverend, is uh, it a reverend. little pretentious sounding. So I, I get that. So um, yeah. So that's cool. I, you know, uh, full disclosure to the listeners, I don't actually know anything about Erica's uh, faith life or her uh, her theological beliefs. Um, Uh, And any little bits of information that I would have would be snapshots from high school and a little bit of college. And we never really talked about that. So uh, you mentioned your your uh, priest. What kind of church do you go to? Uh, We actually go to a Baptist church 
um, okay. here in town is called Lewis Chapel. Um, so I am actually, uh, my family is mixed race. And so it is a predominantly um, black church, historically black church. There's two of those in Fayetteville. And so that's one of the ones that we go to. Um, and it's, it's actually quite sizable because it has three different locations. And awesome. the, the church that we go to has three different services on Sunday morning um, in okay. order to accommodate everybody. So I, I consider that to be a sizable sizable congregation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, um, when you think about that 99% of American churches have less than 100 people, uh, you know, we us city folk we have a, a kind of warped idea of what a large church is uh but that, that's also, so american baptist i'm assuming yeah okay yeah. i mean i in high school right and and younger i went to beaver's first baptist church uh and just for the listeners beaver is a small town in uh the panhandle of oklahoma and super small church right super small <laughs> yeah um and so this is an interesting difference in size of congregation and just the number of activities that they have is very shocking. Right. You know, um, when you look at the bulletin and there's an entire like page and a half of activities for that week. <laughs> right. It's, it's a little, uh, so I, I preached on Ash Wednesday, uh, this last Wednesday. Um, and you know, we have probably 200 people for that service. And it's weird thinking that like I have as many people listening to me preach as would be present at like my high school's football games or, you yeah. know, it's uh, it's, it's all about scaling up. So uh, talking about the church, uh, yes. it, it really started off more like Beaver, uh, the, the church in Beaver, right. Mm -hmm. With a small number of people than, um, than these mega churches that we see today. Right. Um, yeah. I appreciated how in um, your right earlier kind of scripted narrative part where you referred to right Jesus coming from the back country. Uh -huh. um, I think that provides a really cool context for people that they don't usually think, right? Um, they think of him being in Jerusalem. They think of right him preaching to thousands of people and not understanding where he's from. And I think that makes it even more relatable. Mm -hmm. Right. He's, he's like most rural Americans. Right. He's a... Uh... He's not at the the hub of power. He's not in Jerusalem, or he's especially not in Rome, which would have been the true, mm -hmm. you know, hub of power. Jesus is, um, he is uh, the ninety nine percent, if you want to yeah. use the you know dated political language. Yeah. Um, so, uh, do you think uh, you you your your expertise? You know, you are you are the first PhD we've had on the show. Everybody else has had a master's education, so congratulations okay. on that. Thanks. thanks. Uh, <laughs> but we're only five episodes in, so uh, we were going to get to PhDs eventually. We just Definitely. wanted to build up to the best, right? Yes. yes. Uh, but um, you studied uh, history and you studied religion. Mm -hmm. Um, and these are, these are focuses of your academic education. Um, whereas, so I study, um, you know, uh, St. Paul school of theology, um, where my seminary education comes from, um, their stated goal is to, uh, teach people to think theologically, right? Like, so that's our, and so part of that is understanding the history of the old Testament and the new Testament understanding church history. And, and, but it's really from the framework so that I can tell people um, how they should understand Jesus. 
how is that different in an academic setting? Like what, what, uh, why do you think, you know, because there's not an assumption of, uh, what people's, uh, metaphysical leanings are right in, mm-hmm. in, the in the, the historical research that goes into studying religion. Um, why do you think, uh, why do you think it's important just from a, an academic uh, point of view to understand the history of religion, the history of Christianity. Uh, why do you think that you decided to do that? Okay, so two different, two different versions. Right, right, yeah. Things are going to go down. Um, so when I studied religion in, in particularly in graduate school, right, and from a historical perspective, um, the majority of the classes that I took, we looked at, right, you have to be able to document all of it mm-hmm. um, in in sources that are not considered to be a religious text or that have no faith association, right? right. So um, you can look at the Bible, but it has to be confirmed somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? So that's where we kind of separate out. Um, but the other element that is added in is actually a lot of sociological theory mm-hmm. um, or theory of, of how peoples come together, why they have religions, why religions are structured the way that they are. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Durkheim and things like that, kind of high, uh, high, high theory that people don't necessarily want to read. Um, right. But it's, it's interesting in that purpose, right? So the, the idea of a movement, right, that religions are another form of social movement. Um, so for historians, sources are the most important thing to us. If we, if we can't back it up with a source, we can't say it, right? right. Um, and when I teach it, that's very, I think, somewhat difficult for students to grasp because I always have to start any discussion of religion, whether it be Christianity, Islam, Judaism, anything else, right? Zoroastrianism. Right. My I favorite. T- yeah. I have to tell them that um, anything that I'm going to discuss has to be supported in the historical record. So it doesn't mean that faith is not legitimate, mm-hmm. um, their faith or anyone else's. It's just that it, it can't be covered in our class it could be covered in another or in a religious institution or by an expert in that um and i'm not trying to convert anybody and i'm not trying to challenge anyone's faith right right um but i do think it's extremely valuable for students to know the history of right the peoples and the ideas that are in their religion in addition to the faith um as far as me with studying it it was um I don't know. I don't want to sound corny, right? Uh, by chance, we'll say that, right? It just right. happened. It just right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm taking this particular class, and I have to come up with something that has to do um, with my interest in slavery in the Caribbean and, and something with religion. And I'm like, what? Uh, and... You know, on that one, I wasn't, I actually had to steer away from slavery when I got to looking into topics. And I ended up looking at Catholic priests who were deported by the French Revolution um, for staying loyal to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were deported to the French Caribbean as punishment. Um, and so I had to understand a lot of different things about, right, during the French Revolution, why are they, right, punishing priests for remaining loyal to the church? Why are they trying to secularize the country? Um, why would these particular priests stay loyal knowing that they could be deported, they could be killed, they could be all kinds of things. Right. Um, then when I did get into my book project, looking at um, priests and enslaved people who engaged with one another, 
why would the enslaved people embrace the religion of a group of people who is oppressing them? Right. Um, and then as far as the priests, right, um, what particularly in their understanding of the religion made them opposed to slavery? Mm. And that one's always kind of hard to get at because it's not like they're all writing down their particular right understanding of the religion. Right, right. Well, and yeah, I mean, so, and, and it's, it's not always the majority view either, right? And so... Um, you're there definitely about, wasn't. <laughs> right, right. So we're talking about the, the French Caribbean, but, you know, there's no, like, De Las Casas like you have in, in, in Mexico that, that's, you know, creating a systemized understanding yeah. and being an advocate for that in a, in a way that he's got an, an actual voice. Like, uh, the 30,000 or so priests that are, uh, that are banished, right, from, mm -hmm. from France, and some of them end up in the French Caribbean, um, they're going to a place where, um, you know, they're, they, they, rep, they still represent the colonizers right? right? and they represent, uh, especially in Haiti, right. Which I know is an area of expertise for you yeah. um, that they, they, they don't represent the, um, they don't represent the needs of the, the popu most of the population. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, yeah. I do want, I do want to ask you about uh, Duddy Buchmann. Uh, yeah. Later. Okay. Uh, I, but actually, let's ask about it now. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> just what about uh, him? <laughs> just, uh, just so we're a hundred percent talking about the same thing. Um, Pat Robertson, a hundred percent right about this. <laughs> right. He is such a scholar, <laughs> such a scholar on Haiti, the revolution, and voodoo, and just really understands. Uh -huh. um, you know, I mean, that's that's my biggest frustration, to be honest, with. Um, voodoo and the misunderstanding it's a syncretic religion sure. right where people's from from west africa are bringing over their animistic belief system and they're melding it with catholicism mm -hmm. right um it's not that they're saying one is better than the other it's just in the moment that was how it was it's not like right. anybody's sitting down and trying to talk to them in their west african language about the religion right um yeah, so this idea to me that, that voodoo practitioners are making a pact with the devil and that has basically <laughs> cursed the Haitian people to be in desperate situations, right, right. for all of eternity. Um, it's, I hate to use this word because people always misinterpret it, right, but it shows just glaring ignorance, mm -hmm. right? Um, do some research, right, right. <laughs> about right. what it's voodoo is and it's not a pact with the devil. Right, and, and but, using, it's not like we're using ignorance as a pejorative. It li no. literally means you do not have the knowledge. Didn't right? go out and, and look it up, just don't know. Yeah. Um, and I try so hard, although I slip sometimes, to not talk about things I don't know, to listen right. and ask questions instead of just blurting out something ridiculous. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> you snopes it first. <laughs> I do, I do. I snopes it Um I email an expert. I, right. I look at academic articles or whatever I can, right? I, I try really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I try. Snopes is such a wonderful resource. It, it is. Uh, although I, I will, uh, I have a, um, <clears throat> I get in debates uh, online. I know that's hard to believe. Uh, mostly on Twitter because I, I, I don't want uh, people that I'm friends with on Facebook to judge me based on my, my uh, political leanings. But that somebody told me the other day that Snopes was just a liberal rag. And so now we're, we're saying that fact check checking resources are fake news. So we're just yeah. in, a, in a, 
in a scary place. Uh, yes. Speaking of scary places. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so um, syncretism, uh, mm -hmm. you, you talk about uh, voodoo being a syncretic religion. Uh, for, for people that are listening, I, I realize not everybody is, is, uh, is familiar with every term that we're going to use. So syncretism is when uh, it's basically the melding of two uh, religions, right? Um, you see that a lot in the Caribbean, not just in Haiti with voodoo, but also you see Santeria mm -hmm. um, practice in Cuba. You see, um, even when I was a, a missionary in southern Mexico, um, you know, the uh, Mayan people there would um, would uh, perform rituals uh, to 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 call upon John the Baptist to bring rain. We know that 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 really the, the ritual is identical to the ritual they would have used to uh, invoke the water god Chalk, right? Um, so these, it's not necessarily um, like these are like evil satanic religions that, that uh, you know, existed beforehand or whatever. It's really, and, and in a lot of times, the, the, the Catholic missionaries or whichever group shared the faith with them would tr intentionally try to make those connections, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what does that mean? Like what? What what do you think that means for the adaptability of Christianity? Is as like is does that point does that syncretism is that a sign of adaptability or is that a sign of compromise? Okay, so I've always toyed with the fact that okay, so we're saying Christianity writ large, right? Right, and, which is which is dangerous to do. It, well, I mean, but I, I I deal with Catholics mm -hmm. in all of my research, right? So the best example I think of with syncretism is actually not in the Caribbean; it's up in like Canada um, with Native Americans, right? And they actually have a saint, the Mohawk saint. Uh -huh. um, I'm hitting myself, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um. I, I think of it there. So with Catholics, right, the word Catholic means universal. Mm -hmm. And so I've always kind of seen it in that regard that they were trying to make the religion as appealing and as applicable to many people as possible. Mm -hmm. um, now, could that be, right, compromise? I, I, I don't necessarily think so. They're seeing, hey, I see something you talk about in your belief system. We actually have something just like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're just helping them. It's kind of like when you learn a new language as an adult, you adapt it through the language you already know. Right. Um, so I've never seen it as a sellout. Uh -huh. like we're saying compromise. We're thinking compromise is like, oh, they're, they're compromising parts of the religion. No, I actually think that they're being quite smart about it by talking to people and meeting them where they are. And it does show just how universal the ideas are. Mm -hmm. regardless if they're right your example when you said john the baptist or chaco right they're both bringing rain they're right what name they used um to the people that are learning it they're like oh, okay i can change the name because i've always believed in that meaning right right um so let's talk about um we're getting to this phase of the podcast where um, we're we we've done all the background right i spent four episodes in the bcs to get ready for my church history podcast, which I don't know what that says, um, but uh, we're getting to the point now where uh, this episode is is doing its best to talk about the historical Jesus, um, and uh, now we're going to be talking about the early history of the church, right? The primitive church, and this is where understanding sources can be tricky, right? Because yeah. the best sources we have 
for the 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 early church is the New Testament. The most biased sources we have are also the New Testament, right? Uh, so, uh, what what can you explain the difficulty of sourcing research uh, or sourcing just anything uh, for this time period? Like, uh, maybe just talk about for people that don't know like what is a primary source what's a secondary source and what you know what what does archaeology what role does archaeology play in all of this and, and how can we know what we know uh yeah. from a historical standpoint um so okay as far as primary sources um we refer to any item whether it be written um an actual artifact an object that you can hold but, but also oral uh, mm -hmm. traditions that are passed down anything that was created at the time of an event. Okay. Um, so a person didn't actually have to be physically present at the event. So for instance, with Jesus, the person didn't actually have to be there to see the crucifixion to still have an account of it because they lived at the time. Okay. okay. So that's how we feel comfortable using newspapers where sometimes a reporter wasn't actually physically present, but they can still give a primary account because it's within the context of that history. Um, but I mean, when I say a physical object, it can be clothing, um, it can be, right, I don't know, um, a weapon, anything like that. And, and I think that's always kind of crazy to people because they're like, piece of clothing, really? And it's like, yeah. Um, that's why whenever I hear about relics and people are like, what are you talking about? And I was like, those are actually pretty cool sources, right? Um, yeah. And so, I mean, that is where sometimes um, archaeology and history do work together or have overlap. Because archaeologists are going to be able to look at an object with no context and then go find context and tell you, right, this object that can't speak to you, they can make it speak. Mm -hmm. um, historians more traditionally have relied on written sources, but we're, we're, we're definitely opening up our minds a little bit. Um, secondary sources, right, are those written by um, scholars that use primary sources in order to craft it and to provide as much context as possible. Because a primary source, no matter what, has its own perspective. And so mm -hmm. if you just look at one primary source, you're not getting the whole story. So it's the job of a historian to pull all these different primary sources together to give you the most complete picture. But none of us are ever going to tell you that we can give you a complete picture. Right. It's the most complete picture we can, but it's going to be imperfect because some sources don't exist anymore. Some were never created. Right. Um, to assume that everybody had literacy or time or access to be able to create a source is just wrong, right? right. Um, so you mentioned the New Testament as a source. Historians don't actually look at the New Testament and say, no, that can't be a source, mm -hmm. um, right? We understand that it is a faith-based document. So um, what we do is a practice called reading against the grain mm -hmm. of something. Um, so trying to read for what information that we can confirm as factual, right, and not right. faith associated and use that information. So I've actually seen plenty of historians citing the Bible. That's not, a, you know, anything a problem with. Um, but the other sources at the time that we would have problems with, too, is the Roman sources that you mentioned, right, with Pontius Pilate mm -hmm. um, being his executioner. The Romans have extensive documents, but they're highly biased in a different direction. Um, so, so we have to, um, read against the grain of those sources as well, right? So you read against sources for, um, removing any kind of maybe bias that could be 
um, associated with faith in a particular re religion. Um, but with the Roman sources as well, they're going to be legal sources more than anything. And legal sources tend to um, have an assumption of guilt, right, and of superiority. Um, the Romans were putting putting Jesus on trial and executing him. They saw him negatively. Um, so, so we do actually have some pretty good material to go from. It's just uh, digging through what is um, confirmable, reliable, and gives us the best story. Okay. So, speaking of the best story, uh, we know, um, like, um, if, if you if you want to take a traditional understanding of the, uh, sorry, my, my charger came undone. <laughs> That's always fun. The downside of relying on technology. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to edit that whole, me, me like going, burr, burr, burr. <laughs> That's not going to be in there. Actually, it might still be in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about um, the New Testament as a source, mm -hmm. right? So um, the traditional Christian understanding is that the four Gospels are um, eyewitness accounts, right, of Jesus. Um, and, you know, and we could talk about uh, Christian scholars and looking at source theory and, you know, where's Q? You're right. Like that's a, uh, you know, there, there's, there's uh, for the listeners that don't know, there's, there's a theory that that Luke and Matthew share common source material called Q, uh, that is, uh, you know, that that is made up of the stuff that wasn't in Mark, right? Uh, and so that like there's a lot of debate on these sources, but traditionally, the Gospels are thought of as eyewitness accounts. And then you've got the Book of Revelation, which is this weird apocalyptic literature um, that, you know, the, the purpose of its writing is n not agreed upon by even within Christianity. Um, and then uh, you've got Paul's letters um, and th the other pastoral letters, which are generally considered um, like the most historical, the most historically reliable because they're personal letters, right? Mm -hmm. Like. These are not thought of as, as being, for the most part, these aren't thought of as, as being planted theological documents. These are like, oh, hey, we were there a couple months ago. How you guys doing, right? Yeah. Um, and so that tells us this one story of the church. But then the, the document that is in the New Testament that is, it doesn't fit any of those descriptions. Um, but it is also, um, it is, and it, it is really, maybe more controversial than the gospels in terms of historicity, the book of acts. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it, it's telling the story of the beginning of the church with the, 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 what happened at Pentecost. And then it, it, uh, it picks up about halfway through with the story of Paul and, and then it keeps going. Um, why is that narrative or why is that one so hard to use as, as a historical narrative compared to Paul's letters? So, okay. Um, part of the thing that we look at with primary sources is the letters are always nice. Anybody who writes any kind of letter, right? I mean, you do have to look at audience. Who are they writing to? 
But typically in correspondence, people are more likely to be genuine, right? Unedited, um, because they don't intend for those letters to be shown to anyone else, right? Now, when a book is written and it's clearly written to be shared with people or as a compilation, you start to look a little bit more at what are their sources, right? Where are they getting the information? Um, but also, how does it disagree with other sources, right? So I was actually thinking of the four gospels when you talk about it. Um, the reason that there's four, right, is not just because it's four, four different people, but it's there's some differences between them. They're not identical. They're not identical. Um, so, right, whenever you talk about Acts talking about Paul, it's better to rely on Paul himself than somebody else talking about Paul, right? Um, and so we just have to be really careful with confirming things. We would still confirm Paul, but it's neat to be able to say, well, according to Paul, right? Um, and you can put Paul in juxtaposition to other other sources. Yeah. Does that yeah. It's it's good to have uh, somebody that can speak for themselves, and then then it's good to let them have a conversation with uh, everybody yeah. else. Yeah, and I mean that is something that um, I think historians really enjoy is giving a voice to the past, right? Mm -hmm. Letting letting these historical figures actually speak for themselves, right. if at all possible, um, and they have some really cool stuff to say. So um, instead of just us telling their story, let them tell it, you know, mm -hmm. as well as well. All right. That noise means it's time for our non-Book of the Bible book recommendation. Obviously, the name for this segment comes because as a Christian, I'm contractually obligated to recommend the Bible whenever the discussion of books comes up. So that's a given. But in addition to the Bible, you might find other books useful. And in preparing a podcast of this type, I have to do a lot of non-biblical reading. So my recommendation for this week is N.T. Wright's recently released Magnus Opus, the New Testament in its World, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. I'm not going to lie to you, this bad boy is almost a thousand pages long. It is a beast, but Wright is by far my favorite theologian and biblical scholar, and if you want to have the best understanding of the context of the early church that you can possibly get without a seminary or postgraduate education, I think this is it. And if you just read three pages a day, you'll have the whole thing read in a year. So, you know, no worries, right? Well, it's time to say goodbye. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. If you like the podcast and want to make sure we make more, make sure to subscribe and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Also, for podcast updates or just to send me hate mail or questions, feel free to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at jkleinsmith. That's jkleinsmith. And if you are just a super giving person and want to support the podcast financially, you can make donations on the podcast website, http backslash anchor.fm backslash postbiblical. Special thanks to Anchor for creating such an easy to use podcast platform. 
And a super special thanks to Dr. Erica Johnson Edwards for being here today. If you want to read more of her stuff, you can find it on a blog called ageofrevolutions.com. She is one of the contributors there and the stuff that she has written is fantastic. Next time we'll be talking about this radical group of subversives that some would argue ended up bringing down the entire Roman Empire. So, you know, the church. <laughs>